Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 914. I'll be reading Acts 6, 8 through 7, 1. Acts 6, beginning in verse 8. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the privilege that we have to come before you. God, to hear from your word, to be reminded of what it looks like to be faithful followers of our Lord Jesus. We ask that you would speak this morning, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have all been a part of a conversation that goes something like this. Who does the baby look like, right? Does he or she look like more like mom or more like dad? Do they look like one of the older siblings? Is it maybe a resemblance from grandma or grandpa? You know, the debate about which side of the family that they resemble most closely. And it's not just the physical traits. Hands, eyes, noses. As the child grows, mannerisms, personality traits, you start to see, oh, this person, they're more like this side or that side. And that can be a good thing, and sometimes that can be a bad thing, right? But this idea of imitation or reflection, reflection of, or imitation of someone else, this is just a common part of our natural world. We see it every day. We talk about it all the time. It's a very common thing. But as individuals, we are more than just our physical traits and our mannerisms and our personalities. We are, at our core, spiritual beings. And just as we might physically imitate or reflect others, so spiritually we are to imitate and reflect another. My argument today from this text, which I think we can deduce from this text, is that we must reflect Jesus in our words and in our deeds, even in the face of opposition. 
We must reflect Jesus in our words and in our deeds, even in the face of opposition. Now add that even in the face of opposition part because there are outside factors at play in our spiritual lives. There is spiritual opposition from our enemy, the devil. And, from, and there's human opposition from those who hate God and who love darkness. Those who sometimes, often, unwittingly are acting as servants of Satan. Now this reflection of Jesus in word and deed is going to be seen quite clearly in the testimony of Stephen in both his life and in his death. We'll see that today in our text and we're going to see it the next two weeks as we wrap up chapter 7. Now as we've been going through Acts, we've been trying to be mindful of the context of where we're at and what's going on. Our context here in chapter 6, as we mentioned last week, is that there is a cultural and a geographical shift away from Jerusalem that we are starting to see that begins in chapter 6, verse 1, as there we have this issue of the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking widows, not being taken care of in the daily distribution. And so they gather together and try to figure out a way to solve this. So it starts here. These seven are listed. It goes through all the way through the end of chapter 8 with Stephen and Philip, their ministries being highlighted. And then finally when we transition into chapter 9 with Saul's conversion, Saul becomes Paul, and the apostle to the Gentiles, there's this idea of the gospel going forth to the world. Remember Acts 1.8, kind of the theme verse, Jesus said that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in the center, right? Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So we are seeing the gospel go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So that's our, our context for where we're at. But we're going to take a closer look today at Stephen's trial and the accusations against him as we consider what it looks like to reflect Jesus. Now, the first thing we see here, which Luke seems to very intentionally highlight, is that that which fills us, in other words, that which is inside of us, is what is going to flow out from us. Stephen is described here with this adjective, full, he is full of grace and power. Now this word is only used eight times in the New Testament to describe a person. Luke uses seven of those. Seven of those descriptions are from Luke. The only non-Lucan use is John in his gospel, where he describes in the first chapter Jesus as the word, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Luke 4, it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Notice then that what is true of Jesus, what he is filled with, grace and truth and the Holy Spirit, is also meant to be true of his followers. We see that so clearly displayed in the account of Stephen. Four of those eight uses of full are in reference to Stephen. The first one is Stephen being included in the seven in verse three of this chapter, where it says that they were to choose men full of the spirit and wisdom. Stephen then individually in chapter six, verse five, is referred to as being full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Here then in six, eight, he is full of grace and power. 
And again, in chapter 7, verse 55, as he's about to be stoned to death, we're told that he was full of the Holy Spirit. So this fullness of Stephen with the Holy Spirit and wisdom and faith and grace and power is outwardly manifested as he is doing great signs and wonders among the people. We are meant here to see another parallel to Jesus. In fact, in this whole account of Stephen's arrest and his trial and his death, there are as many as ten different parallels to the arrest, trial, and death of our Lord. Now in verse 9, Luke introduces us to the main instigators here. They are described as those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. Some commentators think that these were prisoners of war who had been released and have now made their way back to Jerusalem. Again, they're most likely Hellenists. They're Greek-speaking Jews. And there, I think, is meant to be a direct contrast here with the seven that are chosen earlier in this chapter to serve the widows for the sake of the gospel. This group here is directly opposed to the gospel, and we're going to see in verses 11 to 14 how they go beyond just simply rising up and disputing with Stephen himself. But first, Luke, as he likes to do, he interjects just this short little reminder of Stephen's Christ-likeness in verse 10 says that these freedmen could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. Again, notice the obvious parallel with verse 3. The seven were chosen to serve the widows, and they were described as those full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now that was a serving role. It was a ministry of mercy, not a ministry of speech. But here... Later on in, in these verses, after the incident with the widows, here Stephen is acting in a more apostolic role. He is speaking, he is declaring the truth of who Jesus is, which we will clearly see next week in his very long speech in chapter 7. I would encourage you even this week to maybe take some time to read through that speech in chapter 7. There's a lot there. We're not going to be able to unpack all of it next week, uh, but it's, it's very, a very great summary of the Old Testament and the, what the prophets foretold and how the people rejected the Messiah. But this wise and spirit-directed speech of Stephen is not able to be withstood by his opponents. Now this here is not only a reflection of Stephen's Christ-likeness, which is very important. It's also a direct fulfillment of what Jesus taught during his Passion Week in the temple in Jerusalem. After foretelling the coming destruction of the temple, which has some parallels with this passage, Jesus warned of wars and rumors of wars, of nations rising up against nations. And then Jesus said this. This is Luke 21, beginning in verse 12. Again, notice the parallels here with Stephen's trial. Jesus said, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Same word that's used here of Stephen's enemies. 
the enemies of Stephen not being able to withstand him, is not a result of Stephen's cleverness or his wittiness. He doesn't wreck them. He doesn't own them in some first century equivalent of like a Twitter battle today, right? He doesn't go online and, and own his enemies. He simply obeyed his master. He took advantage of his opportunity to bear witness, not settling in his mind beforehand how to answer. When the high priest questions him, are these things so, he doesn't say, oh, hold on, let me go get my notes, right? He was taught by the Holy Spirit what to say, as Jesus promised earlier in Luke 12, 12. And as we'll see in a couple weeks at the end of chapter 7, when Stephen is martyred, he fully fulfills Jesus' words in Luke 21 that follow the promise about responding with spirit-directed speech. Jesus said, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance you will gain your lives. Now sure you might say, but we're not being delivered up and put to death as Christians in America today. That's just stuff that happens in faraway communist regimes. Well, my family and I lived and served in one of those regimes and I never witnessed a Christian being arrested, let alone put to death. Now, certainly it does happen. But the point here is not that we should just wait for and expect these most extreme circumstances like being put in jail and being put to death. Rejection by family, which Jesus promised, because of our faith in Christ, which we all know someone or we've maybe ourselves have had that experience of being rejected by our family because of our faith. So rejection of, of family or hatred in the workplace or on campus or just in society in general, for speaking about Jesus. This is our opportunity to reflect Jesus in our words and in our deeds, even in the face of opposition. We don't have to just say, well, I, I don't really get to represent Jesus unless I'm being like stoned to death or thrown in jail. Any opposition that we face is an opportunity for that. And for Stephen, the opposition only ramps up in verses 11 through 14. These disputers, these freedmen that we were introduced to in verse 9, we see what they do here in verse 11. It says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Some irony here because they're the ones who are saying, He's not obeying God. He's not upholding the law. And here they are instigating and getting people to, to speak falsely. So, kind of fascinating. But there are two accusations leveled against Stephen here. The first is for the words that he has said, which they're accusing him of blasphemy, a matter of life and death. And the second accusation is for teaching the words of Jesus, which are believed to be opposed to the temple and the law. We'll be seeing this much later on in Acts during Paul's trials. It's the same accusation that Paul is speaking against the temple and the law. But now here, Stephen is on trial for his life. His life that is now in the hands of those with the power to determine his fate. Look at verse 12. 
And then we'll notice what they do following this. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And it says they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now we're no doubt meant here by Luke to see the parallel with Jesus' trial. Mark chapter 14 has the closest parallel account with the same men present, these, the same characters are here who condemned Jesus, and similar accusations. This is Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse, verse 53. Notice again the many parallels. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council, who we see here, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Obviously speaking here about his own resurrection. He goes on, yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Same accusation against Stephen. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Well, so what? So what that Stephen's trial parallels Jesus' trial? If we're not going to trial for charges of blasphemy, so what? We've said several times in our Acts series that the things that we see here in this book are both transitional, meaning they were unique to the apostolic period. There are things that happen that are not to be repeated, and we've seen many examples that we'll continue to see examples of that. But that Acts is also at the same time programmatic. Meaning that there are things that were true for the first century Christians in Jerusalem that are equally true for 21st century Christians here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Things that Jesus said would be true of those who follow him. Like he said in Matthew 10, 25 and 26, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is simply the constant refrain in the Gospels and throughout Acts. Persecution is bound to come as a result of faithfulness to Jesus and his Gospel. We should not be surprised by this. 
Now it may look like actual physical persecution or just simply being maligned. Ironically, as those as being those who do the work of God by the power of Satan. That's what people criticize Christians of. Which is an insane accusation, yet unsurprising because Jesus told us it would happen. When people say, you're the evil one, you're the wicked one, what do we do? We don't say, oh no, like, let's just try to make them like us. We say, yeah, I mean, that's what we expect, right? The world doesn't understand. So this is the accusation against Stephen. Essentially that he's too much like Jesus. He looks and speaks and acts too much like Jesus. The rebel who had recently been put down by the powers that be. And now they must deal swiftly with the remaining followers so that this, that this rebellion doesn't continue to grow. So we see the high priest question Stephen in chapter 7, verse 1. Are these things so? And we'll see his lengthy response to the accusations next week. But I want us to close by looking at verse 15. Try to picture this scene here. Verse 15. And gazing at him... All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now this council here would have been seated in a semicircle in front of Stephen with multiple layers, rows of people staring down at him, accusing him. And they were not staring at a man who was shaking in his boots. They weren't staring at a man who said, Oh no, what do I do now? I'm being charged with blasphemy. I'm being falsely accused. What should I do? He wasn't afraid for his life. He wasn't looking for an opportunity to take back everything that he had said so they would simply just let him be. No. These men were confronted with their own evil and their own wickedness as the glory of Christ was reflected in Stephen's face. Listen to John, how John Stott describes this scene. He says, It is surely significant that the council, gazing at the prisoner in the dock, should see his face shining like an angel's. For this is exactly what happened to Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law, which is what Ethan read in our Old Testament reading in Exodus 34. Was it not God's deliberate purpose to give the same radiant face to Stephen when he was accused of opposing the law as he had given to Moses when he received the law? In this way, God was showing that both Moses' ministry of the law and Stephen's interpretation of it had his approval. Indeed, God's blessing on Stephen is evident throughout. The grace and power of his ministry, his irresistible wisdom, and his shining face were all tokens that the favor of God rested upon him. Brothers and sisters, what about us? Are we reflecting the glory of God to the world? Are we like Jesus? Do people see Christ in us when they see us? When they witness our deeds and when they hear us speak, what is it 
that they see what is it that we are reflecting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us about the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of the New Covenant. How in contrast to the Old Covenant, this New Covenant is a glorious ministry. Paul talks about the difference between those who are in Christ and who are bold because of the hope that they have and, and the difference between those and those who were like Moses, who Paul says would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But those, again, who are like Moses, it says their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. That's a good description of those who opposed Stephen in Acts 6. And all those who oppose Jesus still today. Whether it's through naturalistic, atheistic materialism, or through moralistic, therapeutic deism. Whether it's irreligious or religious. There are people opposing Christ in both of those senses. But, Paul says, always pay attention when Paul uses the word but, okay? But, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now pay attention to this. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, those of us who are in Christ, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The shining face of Stephen that the crowd saw, saying it, looked like the face of an angel, was simply the glory of Christ being reflected off of him to those who sought to put him to death. Now again, I don't expect any of our faces to actually start physically glowing for people to see today, right? But you've heard people talk about the change they've seen in people who have come to Christ, right? Like how their face actually changes. How they're a new person. How they're actually enjoyable to be around now, right? They're not jerks. They're not crotchety whatevers like they used to be, right? There's joy in their, in their face. There's joy in their, their words and in their actions. This is the reality of a changed life. That we reflect the glory of Christ to the world around us. Now, I'm not going to like sit here and be this doomsday, you know, oh, the world's just falling apart, everything's bad, but if you've been paying any attention lately, you know, how, whatever lately means, last few months, years, decades, just increasing hostility towards Christians in our culture. Some of it, you know, you read certain things and you're like, yeah, this person really, or this group did some stupid things, and I understand why people are upset, but... 
you know, that kind of just translate in, translates into a general disdain for Christians. And, you know, the word evangelical is like a curse word in our culture now. And, you know, that might not be a direct reflection of anything that any of us have done to anyone else. But we're lumped in with that. And the question, brothers and sisters, is how are we going to act? Are we going to, like, retreat and say, oh, I just, I don't want to be, like, associated with that. Or I don't want to, you know, I don't want to speak up. Or are we going to let our words and our actions speak loudly about what we believe in a way that's in line with how Christ taught us, right? Are we going to reflect the glory of God, whether it's just in a comment that somebody makes in the workplace, or whether it's maybe someday more outright actual physical persecution, Stephen is such a great example here, and we're going to continue to see for the next couple of weeks the way he faced this opposition. He didn't fight for his own rights, right? He just simply reflected his Lord, the love he had for his Lord, the love his Lord had for him. He reflected that to the world around him. So that's my charge to us, my challenge to us. Will we be those who reflect Jesus? Will we be those who people see and say, there's something different about you. I don't know what it is, but there's something different about you. And then when they say that, say, well, let me tell you, right? Let me share with you the good news. Let me tell you what God's done in my life to change me. Brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, let that be true of us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your servant, Stephen. Thank you that he was a man filled with wisdom, power, grace, faith, the Holy Spirit. Thank you that he simply walked with Jesus, walked in the power of your Spirit in the same exact way that we can today. That he obeyed you to the end. That he did not hold back but talked about who Christ is and what he has done Father fill us fill us afresh today God cause us to be a people who reflect the glory of God who reflect the beauty of our Savior who reflect the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives May people see an actual difference in us. May we look for opportunities to speak, to testify to who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, come up what may, may we be faithful to the end. Preserve us, sustain us, equip us, God, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.